This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler, tenured Dr. Shoot, I messed it up. Tenured Dr. Holly Oxhandler. It's a lot of words, but congratulations, <laughs> Holly. How are you this week? Oh, I'm so good. I don't. I mean, I mean, how can I? How can I be anything else other than like grateful and just in such a good mood right now after yesterday and that news? Oh my yeah. gosh. Whew. Yeah. No, I'm really I mean, good. A lot of work, and it's been something yes. obviously that you've been working towards for a long time. Um, I say that as if I know anything about what that means necessarily, but I know it's a big deal. So congratulations. I know, uh, you know, our listeners will be celebrating along with you. It's a big deal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so, so, so thankful. Yeah, it's it's such a weird process, the whole tenure process. It's like, I know if there are any academics or, you know, folks who've, yeah, who know academics, like they may be generally aware of it, but it's just a... It's a wild process. It's like, you know, the five years of grad school and getting my PhD that like the goal was to eventually have a faculty job that hopefully I could get to stay with for a long, long time. But the tenure track is like a six year long process of producing a certain level of research and, you know, teaching you know, and the service that I'm engaged in. And anyways, all that to say, just it's basically like me extending an engagement ring to Baylor and saying like, please let me get to stay here. <laughs> um, let me get to continue doing this research and let my family continue to um, to grow and live here and thrive. And, and it's so, yeah. it just feels so good. Like it's done. It's done. Yeah. So. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that. So, well, anything else exciting been happening? I guess. Oh man, no. I feel like that has been quite keeping it been keeping us quite busy, just celebrating yeah. and and really and I mean, part of the lesson really is actually pausing to celebrate and not just like run into the next task or project or thing, but just being able to like be still and receive and be grateful that like and celebrate that this has happened. So, so anyways, no, that's, that's all the big fun news in our home. So what about y'all? How, how are y'all doing? We are good in, you know, it's, it's funny because we recorded the intro for last week. We said a little bit late. Uh, we, that one was, you know, Sunday night, which is later than we normally do. And this one is a little bit earlier than we normally do. Yeah. So in between, Mm -hmm. uh, recording these intros, it's only been, you know, a, a handful of days, but yeah, right. Partially because, <laughs> or actually it's entirely because this weekend, like that leads up to the release of this, I'll be doing some traveling um, mm-hmm. for some family stuff. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it in, in a weird way, only because I actually really like traveling by myself, mm, like in, like yeah. flying. 
Yeah. I don't know yeah. if, you know, I know some people it like really stresses them out. And if you add a bunch of people to it, then um, I don't like it quite as much. But mm-hmm. there's something about tra- like flying by myself that I really enjoy, like kind of just navigating the process. And, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't, I think it's, I don't know, I think it's fun. So um, it'll be just me flying. I'm, I'm looking forward to that part of it. Yeah, that's good. No, I totally understand that. I think, yeah, I, I totally get that. It is nice as long as there, you know, when there's when there's ever any like hiccups um, on travel day, that's kind of when I go like, uh. but other than that, it's, I love it. So I'm with you on that. Yeah. So, okay. So I have a question for you. So I'm curious. So now that Gray is, he's approaching almost two now. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe that. Um, gosh. So I remember like when Callie and Oliver, like around that age, all of a sudden, like they would start doing some things that it's like, did you, wait, were you able to do that before? Or like you just suddenly (laughs) started doing this and did I miss something? Like you're, and, and so I'm just curious, like has Gray, has he started like any behaviors or little tricks or things lately that you and Brooke are like, what? Yeah, he definitely, uh, he definitely can put like much longer strings of words together, which I mean, has happened in the last maybe four to six months, you know, uh-huh. it's like one word and then two words. And now it, it seems like he's making whole sentences. Um, he definitely, he's always been like very alert and active, mm-hmm. um, even like when he was very first born. And so I think he, he watches a lot, like he's just very he pays a lot of attention and so yeah. he ends up like knowing how to do things that we haven't like taught him how to do, mm. you know? And so, like yesterday yeah. we got home and I like took off, I like unzipped my jacket and took it off and like put it on the couch or whatever. And then I started getting him some food and I turned around and he had just like unzipped his coat and oh then my was gosh. trying to like, take it off, but he couldn't get it off his arms. And I was right, like, right, right. Wait, how did you function a zipper? Like we've never, you know? Yeah. And so things like that, you know, he'll just like go over and like, open this thing or like, you know, turn on this or and we're like, how, how are you doing that? But yeah, it's just because he pays a lot of attention, you know, That's so, so I don't, it's, there's definitely, you know, probably once a day he does something that is somewhat new or surprising, you know, whether it's yeah. a new word or some kind of something he learned at school or, you know, mm. just an action that he's watched us do enough times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it is, yeah. it's wild to like watch happen, you know, like just this little human yeah learning the world yes yeah and and i know you were saying like you know even the things that you and brooke are like well we didn't really teach him how to do that but it's like no 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 y'all are teaching him like all the time especially as he's watching y'all so carefully it's like you don't realize how much you know we're teaching them in you know in just all those subtle little things it's amazing so but i am impressed that he's able to you know like do the zipper on his jacket. That's awesome. Yeah. No, he does all sorts of stuff. Go gray. Well, why don't you tell us? I know last time I, you know, did the little segue. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this week's guest? Yeah. Oh my gosh, y'all. I am so, so excited. We have Seth Haynes on um, this week's episode talking about his new book, The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life. Um, We talk um, quite a bit about his background and kind of what led him to writing this book. And we talk a little bit about his, his last book, Coming Clean. But this is a bit more of an overarching 
episode and conversation um, just about the book of waking up and um, just some main takeaways that we had gotten out of this book. But we're really excited that Seth is going to be coming back on for part two next week. So, so we would love for you to listen through this episode and just hold tight for some of the practical stuff that we're going to talk about next week. But I, you know, Seth is someone who, you know, I've just been following for a while in you know, the Twitter space and have just loved some of the things that he shared and written. And I cannot say enough good about this book. I just am, I, oh my gosh, it's so good. So, yeah. 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 Anyways, I don't want to say too much. I'd rather like get to the episode and let's let Seth dive into it. So uh, here is our episode with Seth Haynes. Hey, welcome back to the show. This week we have Seth Haynes on. Um, he is a writer, a photographer, and a quasi-native in Arkansas uh, who loves the Ozarks, his wife and his four boys, and a good collection of poems. He is the author of The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life, and the award-winning book Coming Clean, A Story of Faith. So today we're going to primarily focus on your new book, The Book of Waking Up, but I realize how important some of the backstory is to this book. And so before we dive into your latest book, do you mind giving us a bit of a backstory or summary around Coming Clean? Yeah, yeah. So Coming Clean uh, was a book that I released in 2015, and it was about my journey into um, sobriety and into, into, you know, what we classically call sobriety, which is not drinking anymore. Um, So leading up to really 2013, I was a practicing attorney, Um, had been a practicing attorney since 2004, so I was well into my career um, I was kind of the typical hard-charging type A uh, guy, business guy. Um, you know, I, I went to church. I was a family guy. I did all those things. Um, but I kind of started to develop what was probably a, a very manageable drinking problem. And by that, I mean I didn't realize that I had a drinking problem. Um, I was probably drinking three drinks a night on most nights, and then I would take a few days off here and there. Um, but to me, it, w- it wasn't like getting in the way of my work. Um, I kind of always joke around that I'm I'm six foot two, and on my uh, father's side, I'm mostly uh, Irish and uh, and English, and on my mother's side, I'm mostly German. So if there's one thing I was made to do, mm. it was hold a lot of alcohol mm-hmm. uh, genetically, you know. So um, but what, what happened is that, you know, I kind of staged this drinking problem. And then, uh, my youngest son, Titus, who's now eight, um, was born and about six months in, he started really having problems growing. And then, um, about seven months in, not only did he stop growing, but he started losing weight and, and it started what was kind of a med- medical emergency. So they checked us into the hospital at Arkansas Children's Hospital. And over the course of a few weeks, um, things just went from bad to worse. And at one point, the doctors kind of came in without any ideas. um, And they just said, you know, I think what we need to do is is make him comfortable, which was a terrible thing Mm. to hear as a parent. I mean, you kind of know what that means. And so I called uh, someone and said, hey, would you bring a bottle of gin to me, a Nalgene bottle of gin to me? 
in the hospital because I was kind of at the point where we'd prayed all the prayers. We'd asked all the right Bible studies and pastors for prayers for healing and nothing was working. And I was just at the place where I really didn't want to feel anymore. Um, and so that night, uh, my friend smuggled in the bottle of gin. Oh. And it was kind of the point at which I decided I didn't want to feel anymore. And I was just going to drink away all the pain and all the questions about the lack of healing and the lack of God's presence. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I just started drinking uh, very intentionally. Oh. And I did that for about a year, um, avoiding sort of the spiritual answers because they were so painful. Uh, even when we were released from the hospital, um, they, they did finally stabilize him and figured out something that would allow him, you know, to not die. But even when we were released, it was really touch and go. He wasn't thriving. He wasn't growing. Um, he wasn't dying, uh, but they still weren't exactly sure what was happening. And so I had this just continual reminder of pain. And so for about a year and a month or so after that time, I just, I drank every night really hard um, you know, five to six drinks a night, depending on how you count a drink, yeah. uh, maybe yeah. eight, if depending, um, and if you count doubles or not, um, which obviously you do. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I just, just really gave into the bottle for that year. And then um, I was at a, a meeting in Austin, it was a conference, and I had stayed up drinking way too late or early in the morning. I, I should say it was about four in the morning when I quit and I had to be at this conference at nine and I'm in the lobby and a woman walks in whom uh, I knew from just writing circles and things. And she was a recovering alcoholic. And when I saw her walk into the lobby, uh, I just looked at her and heard uh, sort of that just internal voice saying like, you can either take care of this now or it's going to get really bad. And here's, oh, here's your gift. Here's okay. the person who can help you. And so I walked across the room and I looked at her and I said, um, not good morning, which is what normal people say. Uh, I said, how did oh. you know you had a drinking problem? And that was the moment uh, where everything sort of broke. And she looked at me and just said, you know, don't you? Um, and then, so that, that day started the process of me just understanding what it looks like to have a drinking problem and how, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't beat your wife or you haven't lost your job or you haven't gotten a DWI, you know, there are other indicators of drinking problems and I had every badge of it. Hmm. Um, and so that was just the beginning of, of the process of, of putting down the bottle and turning to God and saying, okay, I'm not exactly sure how to do this, but help me um, come into something that approximates sobriety and something that approximates connection with you. And that was sort of the genesis of coming clean, which is a 90 day exploration of sobriety. It was my first 90 days and it just mm. kind of chronicles and tracks my experience through um, sort of those those shaking, steady moments, as Theodore Rothke might say, the poet, those shaking, steady moments of sobriety and how I kind of got my, my knees stable, my legs stable and underneath me uh, through therapy and counseling. Yeah. 
No, that's so good. Well, and I appreciate that you're bringing up the therapy and counseling so early in the conversation because obviously, you know, that's a big piece that Robert and I care deeply about and having that piece woven in, you know, as as we can. But I'm so glad that it was helpful for you yeah. um, in your path to sobriety and and waking up through this. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. For me in, in early, very early on, I went to a therapist and I asked him, it was like three days after I quit drinking. And I said, do I, do I need to go to AA or CR or some 12 step mm-hmm. program? And I'd kind of walked through some of my very particular pain points with the lack of healing and, and all of the failed prayers or what I thought were failed prayers. And he looked at me and he said, you know, you can do that, but my fear is that if you go and you start looking for your higher power, you won't find him. And then Mm. you're going to be in a much worse position because you're not going to have had the therapeutic help to deal with the underlying pain point. Yeah. So if you need to go to AA or CR, trust me, give me a couple weeks, I'll tell you. But for now, let's start the therapeutic process of sort of working through your pain and getting you on some emotionally uh, stable ground so that if you go to AA or CR, you really can do the work you need to do there. That's so good. That's a good therapist right there. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Man, that's good. Yeah. Well, thank you for unpacking that, you know, that story that's so beautifully outlined and coming clean. And I definitely want to recommend that our listeners go back and check that one out. But um, for sure, we really want to dive into your newest book. It was crystal clear reading through this that you really did write the book of waking up for everyone. Um, That it's not just for those with some severe addiction, but, um, or only those with um, addiction to various substances, but that it even includes those more socially acceptable addictions and attachments as well. So um, with that, can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you talk about addiction as really just an unhealthy attachment or misplaced adoration yeah. throughout the book? Yeah. So early on in my process, I found myself really wrestling with the idea of addiction. You know, it has so much implied meaning. And it has implied meaning that that sometimes allows us to truncate the process of healing. Mm. Um, and so I feel like if you can just say, oh, yeah, I'm an addict, and then I can go to 12-step, um, that somehow there's this sense that that 12-step is, is going to work and that it's going to bring healing and wholeness to your life. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's just not. Um, and so... Yeah. Even in my early process, I, I was questioning, like, am I addicted or do I just have a drinking problem? And I, am I dependent? You know, what is the label that we put on this? And what I kind of came away with very late um, in my sobriety, maybe two or three years in, was that really that addiction language for me wasn't super helpful. And in fact, for a lot of people I was talking to, it wasn't super helpful. And the reason is because once they kicked one addiction, quote unquote addiction, mm-hmm. they just moved to yeah. something else. Right. Um, and I remember reading this article. It was called Off Off the Off the Heroin Onto the Cupcakes, I think is the name of the article. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was in the New York Times, but it may have been the New Yorker. I can't quite remember. Um, mm-hmm. But in this article, it sort of chronicled the story of this guy who was a heroin addict quote unquote, and he kicked the habit. 
but then was he was going to his NA meetings and he was sitting through the 12 step, he found himself constantly reaching for the M&M's bowl in the back of the room or reaching for an extra piece of cake or, you know, these sort of sugary substances that, that sort of do something for the narcotic addict. Um, that's sort of a breakdown in the brain chemistry in the same ways that maybe heroin breaks down. And so he went from this very gaunt weight, I can't remember what it was, but uh, ballooned up 50, 60, maybe 70 pounds. And he found that what he had done is he had kicked one addiction only to substitute it for another addiction for mm. uh, sweets, for sugar. And yeah. so though he was sober in the colloquial sense, meaning he wasn't shooting up anymore. He wasn't completely sober. He, he hadn't dealt with the emotional baggage that was driving negative behavior. And he just substituted her, uh, sugar for heroin. So was he no longer an addict? I mean, that's kind of the, the, the big question. It's the, the elephant in the room that no one wants to quite look at. Was he still an addict? I mean, no in a sense. But yeah, he had just substituted one attachment for another. And so for me, the language of attachment became a lot more helpful to me um, because it describes uh, a little bit better what we do. We, we don't want to feel anything. And so we attach ourselves to a substance. We hitch our uh, horses to a particular wagon, so to speak, right? We attach ourselves to booze thinking that's going to numb the pain. And then when we have to give up booze because we have a drinking problem, we attach ourselves to some other substance. Like for me, maybe it was books. Um, like maybe if I got mm -hmm. the right kind of knowledge, I could kick the habit. And so I started voraciously book buying, um, you know, or maybe for others, it's, yeah. it's something else. Uh, maybe it's porn. Maybe it's social connection through social media. Um, mm -hmm. But there are any number of ways that we can attach to sort of do something for us that only uh, really God was designed to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that kind of broader perspective. You know, I, I tend to think in terms of like, hey, everybody's trying to get their needs met, right? So whether it's safety or comfort or connection, right? Like so, and you're yeah. talking about just what it is that you're using, just replacing it with other things, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. instead of saying, okay, we're only talking about substance abuse or whatever, right? We're saying, okay, we're looking at a broader perspective of what is it that you're using to fill these things. So you talked a second ago about pain and its role in this process, right? And you you talk about three kind of shapes of pain and their narratives. Can you talk some about those? Yeah. So as I was doing my research more and more on addiction, and as I was thinking through my own story, um, I started to see the truth that other addiction specialists have written about. You know, um, Gaber Mate, the, the great writer of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, said that it's never, the question for the addict is never why the addiction. Instead, the question is why the pain. And that is so true. I mean, in my own life, I could trace a line back through a particular type of pain. And when I was, you know, six years old, I was very sick with asthma. And I went to the doc doctors, I went to uh, different kinds of healers. And ultimately, my mom took me to a faith healer. And, you know, she was at her wits end. She didn't know what else to do. And the mm -hmm. faith healer, uh, looks at me and he puts his hands on me and he says, if you have enough faith, if you believe enough, you know, you can be healed. And then he mm. does the prayer over me and all these things, you know, and I'm a child and 
you don't have much more faith in a child. Yeah. Um, and within a couple of weeks, you know, I had another asthma attack. And so for me, the message that I was left with by a spiritual authority was that I didn't have enough faith, that I wasn't good enough for God's healing. And for me, that message really shaped up to look a lot like scarcity. Now, that's important for my story because uh, then when I'm in my mid-30s and when Titus is sick and when he's not being healed um, and when no number of prayers seem to be working, what, what do you think my brain does? Like it goes back yeah. to my six-year-old self, right? Yeah. I mean, this is what we do as humans. We make connections throughout life. And so I go back to my six-year-old self and I've never been enough. I've never had enough faith. I've, my prayers have never seemed to work. And so for me, I really just felt this as a scarcity kind of complex, one shape of pain, scarcity. And the scarcity narrative says there's never enough. And man, I can tell you right now, like it's in every facet of my life, you know, there's never enough knowledge. There's never enough money. There's never enough social influence. Like this is a narrative that continually plagues me. Um, and it's a shape of pain. So as I started working on this, one of the things, this book, what I, one of the things I started to find as I was talking to others is that that scarcity narrative didn't always really resonate. Um, but what I found was that there were two other shapes that seemed to come up over and over and over again. And one is the scarcity of loss, and the scarcity of loss kind of says you're always alone. No matter what you do, no matter how you try to combat this, you're always alone. Mm-hmm. And then the next narrative that I heard a great deal was this, the, narrative, the narrative of abuse, the shape of pain of abuse, which says you're not safe. The world is not safe. Nothing is safe. And it just seemed to me as I sort of began to try to understand pain um, and, and its connection with addiction, that what I wanted to do was allow people a way to say, how can I identify my pain? You know, this is one thing I heard over and over again is I don't have any pain in my life. Well, what were the ways that I could kind of give people to begin to identify their pain? And, it, you know, it's just a working guess. I'm no therapist. You guys are. Um, but my working guess is, this, is that if you ask people, hey, which of these three narratives do you identify with most? Like there's never enough. I'm always alone or the world is not safe or I am not safe. That if you allow the people to sort of identify which narrative they run through their, their noggins on a almost consistent basis, that they could begin to identify the discrete pain points of their life. And then that could be a doorway to therapeutic results. Yeah, that's so good. I think, I mean, I think that those three, those three shapes of pain that, that you talked about with scarcity, abuse, and loss, I think that they make perfect sense. And I do think that they echo for a lot of folks' experiences. And you do such a great job within this book of inviting the reader to reflect on each of these with some questions and being able to really pause and think through like how how do these show up in their lives or how have they influenced various things that they've turned to to cope. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that it, they're they're spot on. You also counter each of these with what divine love says on the other side of this pain. Do you mind kind of unpacking each of those two? Uh yeah. Yeah, it may be easier to kind of talk about this at a more meta, uh, at a more meta level, 
right? Yeah. So for me, what divine love does, and you see this throughout the scripture, is divine love consistently counters with uh, the truth of presence, right? So the truth that um, no matter what narrative you're running, the narrative that you know is a lie, the divine love of Christ or God or, you know, whatever the faith tradition may, may be, may see this a little bit differently, but the divine love enters in and says, that's a lie. The truth is the opposite, <laughs> you know, and, mm-hmm. and ultimately the divine love of Christ says, I am here. You know, this is what Jesus says when, when he, he says like, I am with you always. You know, these are the promises of the scripture that we're not alone, that we have enough. Life is abundant. It's enough. God has given us enough and that the world is safe so long as we uh, are attached to the vine, as long as we are connected to the divine love, as long as we're inviting the divine love into our lives over and over and over again. So I think at a meta level, the answer is divine love gives the equal opposite answer, the answer that is the solution to the pain point. Mm, yeah. That's so good. It makes mm. And it makes sense too. Yeah. I want to dig into more of that divine love piece. Robert, I don't know if you had a question though. That no, no, go ahead. Okay. Uh, no, I was just agreeing. I was thinking about all like the narrative therapy training yeah. I have and I'm, I'm here for it. So go ahead. Yeah, that's awesome. So I love how you talked about divine love like throughout this book, but there was one point that I really think the essence of what you were starting to identify um, really kind of jumped out. And it was in this one part where you were writing about those 90 days. Do you mind kind of giving just like a little bit of a brief background and then reading that part around the 90 days? Yeah. So um, for me, I was really concerned. I was concerned that I wouldn't connect with God, which is to say nothing about my therapist. Um, But I was concerned that I wouldn't connect with God. And so um, I just really decided I was going to give it 90 days and see what happened and see if making myself available would somehow open something up. And so in the book, I write about this. This is um, called the 90 day experiment. It's in one of these little micro chapters Um, in the book of waking up called the 90 day experiment, 90 days. That's what I gave God in the evenings. I sat in my living room chair with a journal and I invited the silent God into my pain. I contemplated the pain, asked him to connect with me in it somehow as mystical or impossible or insane as it might sound. The more I invited him into that pain, the less the animal voice in it howled. The fires burned less hot. Something like peace settled over me, and though I never heard his voice, he was somehow present. In that presentness, a different flame was kindled, the flame of divine love. He didn't fix everything overnight, of course, didn't cure Titus's illness overnight, or drop gold from heaven to pay all the hospital bills. He didn't even see fit to give me all the perfect verses at all the perfect times. Instead, he taught me how to be still, even in the darkness. He taught me how to be loved. It wasn't a miracle, but it was close enough. Hmm. I I think that really captures the essence of of what my experience with God has been. 
in a world that is so fractured and broken and noisy. I mean, we just had the Super Bowl last night, right? And what was that but an exercise in noise? And I think in a world like that, I just needed space to sit down and be clear, like to be still, to be silent, and to make a way for the God that I thought was absent to just show up and he shows up in the stillness and he shows up in the mm-hmm. silence. He doesn't show up in the noise. And this is why meditation, this is why therapy, this is why uh, uh, sort of these, these group therapy uh, spaces like, a, like an AA are so good because they clear away a lot of the noise and, and allow us to really listen and hear the truth and hear the small voice of God. Yeah, that is so good. That was one of my favorite parts of the whole book, honestly, was that section right there. And in part of it was um, just because it 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 rung true. I told I was texting Robert and told him before there's a part of that that just feels like a tuning fork for mm-hmm. me because it just mirrors so much of the experiences that I have had with centering prayer and practicing yeah. centering prayer every day. Yeah. And it's just there's it's so hard to describe it, but I feel like exactly what you wrote in that is, is just, it just echoes so much of what um, I have found. So. Yeah. And I don't know if you, if if you've experienced this or not, but, um, or if you still experience this in your centering prayer prayer Mm. practice, I actually had this experience this morning Mm. where I was in an adoration chapel and I was sitting in the stillness and the silence and I could not stop my brain. Like it was so chaotic. Yeah. And then there was this moment, right? There's this moment, like maybe 30 minutes in or 40, like about the time I was ready to give up. Mm -hmm. And it just like this complete silence settled in. Mm -hmm. And and it was not maybe but like two minutes because I had to leave. But for that last two minutes, it was like, okay, now it's clear. Now I can feel the love. Now I can feel centered. Now I can feel the presence of God in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm good to go. And somehow that charges you up. But have you had that experience? Oh my gosh, of course. Yes. <laughs> I would say that, I mean, most days it's not like as soon as I sit down and close my eyes, I'm like in that deep chamber space of quiet and stillness. It, it takes like, I, I like Felina Hewitt's talks about, you need at least, um, like 10 minutes just to kind of get yourself settled. If you're lucky, yeah. it's 10 minutes, yeah. but yeah. you know, sometimes it's not until the 18 minute where all of a sudden it starts to settle or, or even the 30 or whatever. But, but then it, but then there's that shift, that groundedness that yeah. becomes evident and it, and it gives you exactly what you need to go about the day. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I totally. And then there are some days too, where that monkey mind just keeps going the whole time and there's still grace in that too right yeah like yeah but no i totally with you on that yep that's awesome Mm. yeah so obviously this book is titled the book of waking up right so can you talk a little bit about what you mean in terms of waking up in reference to these addictions and attachments right like what is what does that look like yeah, so it was really interesting to me um, when I started to look through uh, the scriptures. I didn't see a whole lot of scriptures uh, on sobriety. I mean, you sort of have them sprinkled around, um, but there's only one place that I really remembered uh, 
the the term sober or sober-minded being used when I really started the process of walking into sobriety. And one that that passage was in First Peter, and um, Peter writes, you know, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, and then be watchful. But some of those some of the translations uh, actually translate uh, be watchful as be awake. You know, you, you can't be watchful if you're asleep. So there was this connection between sober mindedness and uh, waking up. And when that, of course, led me to the scriptures that Paul writes about, about uh, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead and the light of Christ will shine upon you. And it, it just seemed to me that the idea of being sober, again, in today's world, it may or may not mean a whole lot. It may just mean quit drinking. You know, but that that doesn't seem to like really mean that you're awake. I mean, I can quit drinking, but if I scroll my life away on social media, or if I'm addicted to mm. porn or whatever, or if I'm over eating myself to death, for instance, um, then it doesn't really feel like I'm living awake. Um, and so, what I wanted to do with this book is just highlight the ways that we all can identify the ways that we're asleep to the love of God, calling us out of our attachments, out of our addiction, out of our misplaced adoration. Um, you know, what is uh, searching for love on Twitter, but looking for adoration and adoring a platform, right? So what are the ways that we can awake to the ways that we're seeking adoration and that we're adoring other things? What are the ways that we can awake to the things that we attach to, to our addictions? What are the ways that we can wake up fully and allow that light of the divine love of Christ to shine in and on us? And that's kind of the the working idea behind the book. Mm, that's so good. So Seth, that that makes perfect sense. I'm so glad you started talking about um, some of the the bits around the process of waking up because I think that's where we want to go. Um, and I think we're going to actually. I'm really excited because we're going to have another opportunity to bring you on specifically to talk about some of those practical steps of the process of waking up. But just so that we kind of have this overarching overview of the book and understanding around um, addiction and attachments and this, this role of divine love, I'd love for you to just kind of give us, you know, maybe what your hope is for this book, at least just in terms of just this overarching big picture direction for it. And then yeah. recognizing that we'll be able to talk a little bit more soon yeah. about the practical end. Yeah. I have a very specific uh, purpose or desire hope mm. for this book. And I, I really think that we are at a critical juncture in circles of faith. And the question that we have to really reckon with is, are we going to be uh, co-opted by the stuff of earth, by the, the, all the mechanisms, the food, the sex, uh, the alcohol, the consumerism? Are, are we going to give in to that or are we going to be awake to something that's eternal and divine? And then even beyond that, the question and the hope that I have for the book is that it serves as a way, as a wake-up call, uh, as an alarm clock for the reader, but also that the reader would learn to own this material, really own it in their own lives, and then uh, lives, and then lead others through it. So the hope for this book is that there'll be pockets 
communities of waking that sort of uh, come together and coalesce around it and really own the process of waking up. And, and, and maybe that leads us into, uh, or, or maybe that can lead us into uh, the part two discussion when we talk about these, these communities of waking up and what are the, the things that we can do to sort of own this waking up process in our own lives. Oh, that's yeah. so good. Well, and it totally echoes with one of the quotes that you had towards the end of the book that said, waking gives way to waking, which gives yeah. way to waking, which gives way to waking. And that echo and that community and the ways in which there's just this process. I, oh man, I'm so excited that we're going to have you on again to get to talk yeah. more about this book. It's yeah, awesome. me too. Me too. Oh, good. Well, if you would like to connect with Seth, you can find him at sethhaines.com or on YouTube um, or Twitter or Instagram at Seth Haynes. We'll have all those links in the show notes. If you want to connect with Robert, you can find him at robert vorcom or on any social media at Robert Vore. Um, or if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. Seth, thank you again so very much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? No, just that it's, it is time. I mean, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up and to experience the divine love that can reorder our lives. Um, and, and, and when I say that to the readers and to the listeners, I say that to myself too. I, I'm, I'm oh. still a work in process. I'm still learning to wake up. So we can all do it together. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.